everyone, can you hear me? Am I mic'd? I can't really tell. Am I mic'd? Yes. yes. Good. Well, it's a joy to be back here again after a number of years. It's just good to see so many familiar faces and good to meet some new faces as well. I uh, look forward to hanging around after the service, so feel free to come up, say hi. I'd love to just renew some of our relationships and also make some new uh, friendships as well. So, so really good to be here. Thanks, Ian, for inviting me. Claire and I really love you and Sherry, so thank you for calling us here to, and calling me in particular to come and preach to you today. Uh, we love Ian so much that we named our second son after him. <laughs> well, not, not quite. Uh, one day, Ian, uh, my second son, came up to me and said, uh, Dad, uh, Mr. Ian is missing an eye. We thought about that. What, what do you mean? I mean, we just saw Ian. You know, Ian just had dinner with us a few days ago before Ian said, no, little Ian said that. So, so he said, what, what do you mean? I mean, we saw, we saw Mr. Ian and he was fine. What, what's wrong with his eyes? He said, no, he's missing an eye. And then, then, then little Ian said, his name, I-A-N, is missing an eye. <laughs> so my, my second son, his, his, his name is spelled I-A-I-N, I-A-I-N, which uh, the bigger Ian tells me that that's actually the correct spelling. So... <laughs> So as parents, we got something, right? <laughs> well, before we begin, let me read uh, the passage of Scripture for us, and then we'll look at God's Word together. We're going to read today from Acts chapter 3. We're just going to read the whole chapter, so follow along as I read. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they, had, whom they laid daily at the te- gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have... I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in a portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us, as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when He had decided to release Him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and by His name, by faith, in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, 
But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that is Christ would suffer, He thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring all shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Amen. You know, what, what a great sermon by Peter. I feel that like I don't have to preach anymore. I could just sit down and you guys could just meditate on these verses in Acts. Such a great sermon. So it's my joy to just kind of bring God's Word, to preach a sermon on a sermon today to you all. So let's pray and commit our time to God and ask for His blessing. Let's all pray together. Dear God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that we can listen to the words of Peter and indeed we can listen to Your very words to us. Oh Father, we pray that You would help us to see Jesus. Father, open the eyes of our hearts. Help us to Behold Christ by faith so that we truly trust Him, so that we know Him, we love Him, and we follow Him. Oh Lord, we confess that this work is not our own. This work cannot be done by us. This is a work that You have to do by Your Spirit. And so we ask You, help us. Help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. What gives us courage? What, what motivates you? In what do you trust? You know, how, how, how can you tell what you're really trusting in? You know, fill in the blank. You know, listen to this sentence and fill in the blank. Life would be unbearable if I didn't have blank. Just think about that sentence for a bit. Life would be unbearable if I didn't have blank. So think for a moment. What will you write in that blank? You know, that blank, this is what we ultimately depend on. This is what our lives are built on. You know, of course, if, if you're a Christian, you, you know the answer, right? You know the correct answer. God, Jesus, right? You know, so we, if, if you're a Christian, you know what, what the answer should be. But, you know, when life gets difficult, or maybe when life gets too easy, it's easy to lose sight of God and to start depending on someone or something else. Now, when we read this book of Acts, this could have been the case for the early Christians. Jesus has risen and ascended and has given His disciples lots of work to do. You know, he's, he's told them in Acts chapter 1, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, now if I was there, you know, my first question would be, how on earth am I going to do this? Right? How, how, Lord... You've just given us a huge commission. How on earth am I able to do this? It's an overwhelming task. And if I were one of the disciples, this is what I would have done. I would have locked myself in the upper room and not come out. Thus, obeying Jesus' commands and His commission, 
Does it make us feel inadequate? Does the task seem overwhelming? It should. It should. If, if we realize that the, the commands and commissions of Jesus are too much for us, then we find ourselves in good company. Think about what Paul says. Who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient for these things? Today we look at Acts chapter 3, which includes really the first mention of a miracle in the book of Acts. And it's, a, it's significant that this is the first time a miracle gets mentioned in the book of Acts. Why does Luke do this? Why does, he t- why does he talk about Jesus' miracles? Not just to give us a nice story about the good, the good things that the disciples are doing, but Jesus tells us about, or, or rather Luke tells us about this miracle to help us to see that Jesus, although he's risen and ascended, he still rules and he still works. He's working to build his kingdom and to grow his people in the gospel. Now, do we realize that Jesus is still at work? Do we realize this? Parents, you know, as, you, as you parent your child and, and, you, and you wonder, how can you help your child to obey? How, how can you raise this child in a way that honors God? Do you realize that Jesus is still at work? You know, singles, do you struggle with loneliness as a single? You know, we've just made it past the Chinese New Year. We've had your fair share of questions asking you when you're going to get married. And then lo and behold, Valentine's Day is almost upon us. Do you struggle with singleness as a single? Do you realize that Jesus is still at work? You know, oftentimes we lose sight of this. And when we lose sight of this, we grow tired, we grow discouraged. And we think it all depends on us. So what do we do? We either give up or we try to guilt ourselves into pressing on. But it doesn't work. What we all need is is spiritual sight. The the Christian life is not, first of all, do a lot of stuff. But the Christian life really begins with with spiritual sight. We're meant to see the glory of Jesus and His power. And Luke wants us to know that Jesus hasn't left us alone to do all the work. In fact, the, the title of this book in our Bible is a bit unfortunate. It says, The Acts of the Apostles. It's not a good title uh, because only Peter and Paul are mentioned and you don't actually hear about the other apostles. In fact, Peter, the mention of Peter sort of stops in the middle of the book as well. So, so the Acts of the Apostles is not the best title. But rather, the, the title of the book should be this. The Acts of Jesus, the Risen Christ, in and through His people by the power of His Spirit. The Acts of the Risen Christ. So it's very appropriate today that we come to this passage and we think about the power of Jesus' name. The power of Jesus' name. So, so we begin by point one. See the power of Jesus' name. Verses 1 to 10. The chapter opens with Peter and John going to the t- Jerusalem temple to pray at the ninth hour, so about 3 p.m. And at the temple entrance, which was called the Beautiful Gate, they come across a lame man. The layman was a regular at this gate. Every day, his friends would dutifully bring him and lay him at the gate so that he could ask for help, beg for donations. The man was, we're told, lame from birth. He has never stood or walked in his life. Every day, every single day, he would be completely dependent on the kindness of strangers. So as Peter and John walked past, 
he does what he always, you know, he, he did what he always does every day. He asked them for a gift. And he's probably used to people not paying him any attention, just streaming past him as they go into the temple. Now, you know, how many of us would actually stop on the street if someone says, hey, can you give me some money? Can you give me some help? You know, how many of us would actually stop and look at the person? So this layman was probably used to people walking past him day after day after day. But today is different, right? He told Peter and John stop, and they look at him. They directed their gaze at him. And if you're, if, if you're the layman, your hopes are probably rising. It's like, wow, okay, these two guys have stopped. Great. Uh, how much can I get from them you know, for, for help? And then, they, then he hears Peter's first words, right? I have no silver and gold. So what a disappointment. You may, oh, okay, great. So what, so what are you going to give me? But Peter goes on to say, what I do have, I give to you. And what's, what happens next is really amazing. Right? In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And Peter lifts up the lame man. And what happens immediately? Notice the word immediately. It wasn't a gradual healing. It wasn't like, okay, take one step and let's see, you know, come back. I'll see you again next week. No, immediately, his feet and ankles were made strong. It's a miracle, clear, undisputed miracle. Instant healing, not a gradual recovery. The man who had been lame from birth is now able to stand for the first time in his life. And not only only is he standing, he's walking. You know, the passage actually tells us again and again that he's walking, as as if we, we can't hear it the first time. He's walking, he's walking. He's walking, and he's leaping for joy. And now this healing is a sign that the kingdom of God has come. Isaiah says in chapter 35 of Isaiah, that when the Messiah, God's promised Savior, comes, this is what Isaiah says, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, Lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. It was interesting, right? Singing is a mark of God's salvation. So it's wonderful that we gather as God's people and we sing. It's a sign that the age to come has come. And this healing is a sign that the new age of God's salvation has dawned on us. We live in this new age of God's salvation. Now, do we realize that we are a part of something far bigger than our own small individual lives? God's kingdom has come and will one day come in its fullness. And now we, we now live in the in-between time between the first coming of the kingdom and the fullness of that kingdom coming when Jesus returns. And it's an exciting time to live. It's an exciting time to live. God's salvation has arrived through Jesus Christ. And He calls us, He saves us to live for Him. And He calls us, His people, to be His co-workers, to bring this salvation to the ends of the earth. It's a very, very exciting time to live. Okay, you don't look so excited, but maybe you get there. <laughs> King Jesus is the source of the healing. Peter says it's in 
his name, in his name. You know, when, when Peter says it's in the name of Jesus, you know, Peter's not saying in the name of Jesus as though it's some magical formula or, or some casual religious phrase that, that we say sometimes, you know, sometimes we, we pray and then after in the name of Jesus, amen. You know, we kind of end our prayer sometimes with the, you know, almost like blurting out that, that religious statement, right, in the name of Jesus, amen. But that's not how Peter is saying it. When, when Peter says, in the name of Jesus, he's drawing on all the Old Testament says about the name of the Lord. You know, there's so many examples in Old Testament, right? They mention the name of the Lord. Listen to this example from Psalm 116. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. Now, the name of the Lord refers to God in His fullness, in His majesty, in His power, in His perfections. And to call on the name of the Lord is to recognize that God is God alone. He's sovereign. He rules. There's no one else. To call upon the name of the Lord is to recognize that this God that we call on is alone able to save. That's what it means to call on the name of the Lord. So every time we pray in Jesus' name, you know, we really need to mean it. When we pray in Jesus' name, we're saying, You, Lord, are my God. You, Lord, are my only Savior. I pray in your name because there's no one else. There's no one else who can bring me back to the Father. There's no one else who can ensure that this prayer that I've just heard will be heard by, a father, by, by my Heavenly Father. That's what it means to call on Jesus' name. Have you called on Jesus' name? Have you called on Jesus' name in this way? Do you know this Jesus intimately as your Lord, as your Savior? So when Peter says, in Jesus' name, he's saying that Christ is the King who rules forever. He's God, He's awesome, He's majestic, He's glorious, He is present. He's with His people, and He's able to save. See the power of Jesus' name in this passage. Look to Jesus and find your rest in Him. Cry out to Him. Even a simple prayer, Jesus, help. Jesus, help. This Jesus is strong to save. You know, the layman was looking for charity, but what he received is far more valuable than just silver and gold. Not only was he physically healed, but he was also saved to worship God. And when Jesus works by his power, he transforms us from rebellious sinners into joyful worshippers who love God who sing to Him, who praise Him with our whole hearts. And He moves our hearts to love Him and praise Him in this way. What's your view of Jesus like? What's your view of Jesus like? How do you regard Jesus? Now, do we have a small view of Jesus? 
Is Jesus the IT help desk Jesus? You know, you know the IT help desk, right? When we have a problem with our computer, what do we do? We, we call the help desk. But you're not going to build a relationship with the help desk guy, right? You're not going to love him or, or spend your life with him. Well, well, sorry if you're married to a help desk guy, but, <laughs> but by and large, you're not going to do that, right? Do we treat Jesus like an IT help desk? You know, you know, hey, Jesus, got a problem. Can you help troubleshoot? It's quite inconvenient. You know, can you just fix this so that I can get on with my life and be productive again? Look, Jesus, come, come, come help me. You know, don't, don't make me wait for too long, right? Do, do we have this kind of small view of Jesus? We need a bigger view of Jesus. We need a bigger view of Christ. Scripture tells us He is able to do far more abundantly than what we ask or think. He's able to change our hearts so that even if He doesn't change our circumstances, we can still worship Him. We can still trust in Him. We can still rejoice in Him. That Jesus' goal is not our comfort. Jesus' goal is not our convenience. Jesus' goal is our glory. Jesus' goal is our glory. And He wants to transform us to become more and more like Him. Now, the Apostle Paul wanted Jesus to remove his thorn in the flesh, right? In fact, Paul had good reasons for that. He said, God, if you take away this thorn in the flesh, I can be better used by you. I can have more strength to serve you. What does Jesus tell him? My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Now, Jesus had much bigger plans even for Paul than what Paul thought. And Jesus was able to, to change Paul's heart and to even use Paul's weaknesses to deepen his faith. And he helped Paul to realize that God's grace is enough. Jesus' goal is our glory. That's what he wants of us. And seeing the power of Jesus' name makes us compassionate towards others. It moves us towards others in deeds of love and mercy. Now, Peter and John took the initiative. The layman didn't ask to be healed, but because Peter and John were convinced of Jesus' power to save, they had the confidence, the boldness to love and serve the lame man. You know, sometimes we are afraid to take the initiative with someone. You know, we meet a stranger at church or there's a friend that we know in need and we're a bit tentative. We're a bit afraid to take the initiative in some of these relationships. Why? Sometimes because we don't know whether we have the capacity or the bandwidth to really love and serve them. And we're right we don't have the bandwidth or the capacity to love in this way. And that's why it's so important that we see the power of Jesus' name. It, it, it's Christ who works in and through us. And, and this boldness gives us confidence and courage to move towards others, to, to give ourselves for the good of others. Not because I'm such a good person, but because Christ works in and through me to, lay, to help me lay down my life for the good of others. So knowing the power of Jesus' name makes us a compassionate people. It makes us a bold and loving people who would move out of ourselves towards one another and others. So, so pause for a minute. You know, just think, who can you move towards in this way? 
You know, how, how can you trust in Jesus and move towards someone in this way to love them and serve them? Is there someone in your life that you're struggling to love, maybe struggling to forgive? Can you move towards them knowing the power of Jesus' name? Think for a moment. You might even want to pray and ask God for help right now in this moment. Second point, have faith in the power of Jesus' name. Now, the healing of the layman causes quite a stir, as you can imagine. The, the crowd recognizes the man. You know, they've seen him every day, and, and they're surprised and amazed to see him walking. And what happens next is interesting. Even though the sign is so spectacular, the sign isn't meant to stand on his own. The sign isn't meant to speak for itself. When Peter sees the crowd, what does he do? He preaches to them. He doesn't just say to them, hey, look at the sign, right? Great. See you next week. No, he preaches to them. He explains the sign. He explains the miracle. And what Peter does you know, in, in preaching actually reflects the pattern of how God works. As you read the Bible, you notice there's a pattern by which God works. He makes promises in His Word, and then He takes action to fulfill those promises and then after that, he explains his actions. That, that's a repeated pattern that we find across Scripture. Promises made, promises kept in action, and then the explanation of the significance of those actions. So what Peter does here is sort of patterned after what God does. Same for us. You know, when it comes to making disciples, we mustn't separate word and deed. It's not as if we have to choose between truth and life. It's both. The work of making disciples involves both truth and life. It's knowing the truth of the gospel and then kind of doing life together as we live out the truths of the gospel. Now, I heard a story of a Christian who tried to be a really good employee in the workplace. You know, he was faithful. He did his work well, diligently. He was, you know, a model employee at the workplace. But he didn't share his faith. He kept it to himself. You know, he wasn't doing that to be secretive, but he thought, okay, you know, I, I have, I'm, a model, I'm a model employee and my actions should speak for themselves. So he didn't share his faith. One day, a colleague approached him and said, hey, guess what? I've become a Christian. And of course, this, this uh, model employee, you know, he's really excited. He said, great, I'm so happy that you're a Christian. I'm a Christian too. And then the colleague his face fell, and he didn't look very happy. What gives? His colleague told him, oh, well, when I saw you living, I saw how you were living, I thought I could be a good person in my own strength, and I didn't need Jesus. Wow. So when people look at us, will they think that we are just good people? When people look at you, when people look at me, would they just think, oh, he's such a nice man. You know, I wish I could be like that nice man. He's such a good neighbor, such a good co-worker, such a good friend. I wish I could be like him. Do we tell them that we too are sinners in need of grace? And do we tell them that we too, like them, need Jesus and we need the transforming power of the gospel? In fact, apart from the grace of God, we're helpless, we're hopeless. Do we tell them that? We must use words to preach Christ. We must use words 
to speak of Jesus. Ah, but how we live is important too. Our lives should give credibility to the gospel and make the gospel attractive to others. You know, Paul tells Titus, you know, adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Kind of make it beautiful. How do you make the gospel beautiful? You live a life that makes the gospel beautiful. You live a life that shows that this gospel is true, that this gospel is powerful, that this gospel really changes. Our life matters. As a pastor, you know, what is the one reason I regularly hear from people who are opposed to Christianity? You know, guess what? What's the one reason I always hear again and again and again as a pastor? Any guesses? When people say, oh, yeah, I, I, I'm not interested in Christianity, what's, what's the one most common reason I hear? Okay, if you, the buttons underneath your seat, you, know, that, you can take a poll. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> the one reason I hear again and again is this. I, I, I don't want to be a Christian because I've had a bad experience in church and with Christians. Isn't it sad? The reason why I don't want to be a Christian is because I've had a bad experience in church and a bad experience with Christians. Nothing turns people off Christianity more than hypocritical Christians. So here's, here's a question for reflection for all of us. How do we live during the week? You know, not, not just how we behave in church, you know, we were kind of smiley and courteous and civil, but how do we live during the week? But what, what kind of person are you at home as a husband, as a wife? Well, what kind of person are you at home as a child? What kind of person are you at the workplace, among your colleagues? among your superiors, among your subordinates? What kind of boss are you? What kind of person are you at school? Your friends that you see every day, almost every day. How do we live during the week? Now, people need to not just hear the truth about Jesus, but they need to see the truth about Jesus lived out. And how do we treat one another in the church? You know, God designed the life, our life together to say a lot about himself and about the gospel. You know, last week, Ian preached from Acts chapter 2. We meant together, from Acts chapter 2, we meant to have a picture of the kind of community that the gospel produces, the kind of life together that the gospel produces. And it's a valid question to ask ourselves, you know, whichever church we belong to, does this characterize the life of our church? If not, why not? The gospel produces a different life together. And when outsiders come into our midst, they're meant to see, wow, wow, I can't explain this kind of love. I can't explain this kind of patience and endurance and care. We're meant to have that kind of effect on outsiders. In fact, in, in this passage, it's Peter and John's love for the lame man that creates an opportunity to preach the gospel. So what's the focus of Peter's sermon? Now, he and John could have focused on themselves. You know, they, they just had a successful healing. They could have set up Peter and John Ministries International, PJMI, you know, gone on a conference circuit, made a pretty good living as inspirational speakers. You know, they could have done that. 
but they don't. Peter begins his sermon by turning attention away from John and himself. What an interesting introduction to a sermon, right? It's not about me. It's not about me. Peter says, it's not about us. So, so why look at us as though by our own power and piety we have made him walk? Why look at us? Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. It's really all about him. Peter's sermon focuses on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. His sermon reminds us to keep the main thing the main thing. Our life and ministry should point not to ourselves, but to Christ. As John the Baptist says, he must increase, we must decrease. You know how, you know, they like to do this at the inspirational seminars, right? You're number one. They repeat after me, you're number one, right? You know, they, they do this at inspirational seminars. Well, I have another alternative for you, right? So instead of saying that, say this, it's not about me. Come, repeat after me. It's not about me. Just say this every day to yourself. It's not about me. You know, you keep repeating this to yourself until you actually mean it. It's not about me. You know, as a pastor, I need to hear this again and again. It's not about me. Let me tell you what I'm tempted by. I'm tempted to fear man. I'm tempted to find my meaning and identity in your approval. In the approval of my church members, in the approval of other Christians, in the approval of people, perhaps people I love and I really care for. I'm tempted to find my identity and meaning in your approval. So what do I need to be reminded by? I need to hear it's not about me. I need to be reminded to put Jesus at the center of my life and ministry. And you know, this, this actually protects me from burnout. Now, why do pastors burn out? Well, sometimes it's really from physical overwork. That's true. But I suspect that some pastors burn out because they are simply exhausted from trying to please everyone. And why do they try to please everyone? because they try to find their identity and meaning in the approval of everyone. But what does Paul say? If, if you seek man's approval, then we're no longer a servant of Christ. It's not about me. So think about all that you do to serve. You know, whether you're leading a, a small group, teaching a Sunday school class, you're meeting up with another Christian, sharing the gospel with someone, in your relationships with one another, make it about Jesus. Our goal in all these different areas of service is really to help others see more, not of us, but to see more of Jesus so that they trust Him and and love Him more. That's why we do ministry. That's why we live in this way. When I preach, do I want people to say, what a great preacher? Or do I want people to say, what a great Savior? Quite different things. So to to wrap up, let me me just go through uh, Peter's sermon. He makes three main points in his sermon. The truth about ourselves, the truth about Jesus, and how we respond. So firstly, the truth about ourselves. If you had to rightly hear about Jesus, we need to realize the truth about ourselves. God made us in his own image so that we glorify him and love him. But each and every one of us, we've all turned away from God. 
You know, we, we might not have been there, physically there, when the Jews crucified Jesus. But what Peter says of the Jews in Jerusalem is true of us as well. We too are sinners apart from God. We, we too have denied Jesus. We've rejected him. If we were there, we would have done the same thing. We would have nailed Jesus to the cross. In fact, our sins have nailed Jesus to the cross. None of us is righteous. Now, knowing the truth about ourselves, what does it do? It, it moves us towards God in confession. But when we confess our sins to God, what are we doing? We, we're actually humbling ourselves before God. And when we confess our sins to God, we are actually agreeing with God about the way God sees us. Yes, you made my image, but you're also rebels. And when we confess our sins, we are saying, yes, God, you're right. No more excuses, no more arguments, no more rationalizations, no more self-justification, no more looking at the other guy and saying, I'm better than that guy. No, no, no more excuses. We're agreeing with God, yes, God, I am a sinner. So we need to know the truth about ourselves. Knowing the truth about ourselves makes us humble, makes us realize that we really need Jesus. We really need Jesus. So that's why we get to point two of Peter's sermon, the truth about Jesus. Jesus is the Savior you and I need. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name by which we must be saved. And as you read Peter's sermon, you know, it's such a, it's such a rich portrait of Jesus. You know, every single point that he makes, it's probably worth like a sermon or so, because he, he paints such a rich picture of who Jesus is. And, and I can only give a very quick overview of the different aspects of Jesus that Peter picks out from, from, this, from his sermon. Firstly, Jesus is the holy and righteous one, the Christ. See this in verse 14 and 18. He's the holy and righteous one, the Christ. Jesus is God's chosen king who rules in righteousness. He is the king we need to lead us. No, he's the good authority that we need in our lives. Someone who loves us, someone who cares for us, and someone who we can trust to really lead us safely home, to lead us towards God. Jesus is the king that we need. And what, what's more, he says he is perfectly holy. He's the one who can make us holy. He's the righteous one who can give us the righteousness that we so badly need in order to be accepted by a holy and righteous God. He is our righteous one. And Peter goes on to say, Jesus is the suffering servant. Now, Peter calls Jesus servant a couple of times. And by servant, Peter doesn't just mean he's someone who serves God. But Peter is thinking about the servant mentioned in Isaiah. He calls Jesus the suffering servant, verse 13, verse 18, and verse 26. He's the one Isaiah spoke about in, in Isaiah 53, that famous passage in Isaiah 53. It says, He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him, Jesus, 
this suffering servant, the iniquity of us all. And when Peter says Jesus is the servant, he says Jesus is the one who came to give his life for sinners like us, undeserving sinners like us. He died the death that we should have died on the cross. And he took God's judgment, the full weight of God's judgment on himself in order to bring us back to God. Next, Peter tells us Jesus is the author of life. Verse 15, because God raised Jesus from the dead, he is able to give eternal life to all who believe in him. He's the source of life. Without Jesus, we are dead in our sins. But Jesus is the one who, because he's risen from the dead, he's able to give us resurrection life. He shares his new life with us. Jesus is the promise offspring of Abraham. Verse 25. Uh, If you know Genesis, God made a promise to Abraham way back in Genesis 12. He told Abraham in Genesis 12 that in, in you, in one of your descendants, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So it's not just your family, Abraham, but all the families of the earth shall be blessed through one of your descendants, through one of your offspring. And Peter tells us that Jesus is Abraham's promised offspring. He's the one promised by God to bring God's salvation and blessing to the ends of the earth. And Jesus has brought God's blessing to us, non-Jews, Gentiles. The reason why we are here gathered as God's people is because we have received the blessing of God through Jesus in fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. And Peter says again, another point about Jesus. Jesus is the prophet like Moses. Verse 22. He's the ultimate prophet. Why? Because he fully reveals God to us. Do you want to know God? Do you want to know what God is like? The Bible says to us, then get to know Jesus. Anyone who knows Jesus will know the Father. And to reject Jesus is to reject the Father. And Peter says we must listen to Jesus. He is the prophet, the ultimate prophet. So all these truths about Jesus show us that we really need him. We really need to get to know this Jesus that Peter speaks of here in his sermon. And this is why we read the Bible. This is why we study the Bible. Not simply to accumulate lots of knowledge about the Bible, but we read and study the Bible so that we can get to know Jesus more and more so that our hearts are increasingly opened to Jesus, so that as we see more and more of the glory and beauty of Christ, we desire Him more and more. We love Him more and more. We trust Him more and more. This is why we read our Bibles. Not just so we can have lots of knowledge, but so that we can know Jesus and really trust Him and love Him. So the the third point in Peter's sermon, how should we respond to Jesus? Peter says in verse 16 that the power of Jesus' name has made the layman strong. But he gets more specific, doesn't he? He says it is by faith in his name. So when we come to know the truth about ourselves, that we are helpless sinners in need of rescue, and when we come to know the truth about Jesus, that he is the only saviour for sinners, then the only right response is to have faith in Jesus' name. So having just knowledge of the truth or doctrine is not enough. 
we must believe in Jesus, trust Him, and, and give ourselves completely to Him. You know, I, I enjoy rock climbing. So those of you who climb, you maybe have a better idea of what I'm talking about. So, so when you climb, you obviously have a rope that sort of makes sure that you're safe in case of a fall. So you, know, so you, 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 you kind of you have carabiners and you kind of secure yourself, you know, get yourself into the rope, and you start to climb. At, a, at the top of the climb, I mean, you have the choice of either climbing down, which is very, very difficult, so don't try it. So you either climb down or you just get someone to lower you on the rope right, when you get to the top. So when you get to the top, you know, you, what, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to lean, you're supposed to take your hands off the wall and lean all your weight. I can't do it now in case someone I fall. You're supposed to lean all your weight onto the rope, right? It's kind of like a test of faith, right? Because so far you've been climbing and your hands have been on the wall. You think, yeah, yeah, the rope is there, but it's a bit theoretical because your hands are still on the wall. But when you get to the top of the climb and your belay buddy below says, hey, lean on the rope so I can lower you, that's when your, the test of faith comes, right? Are you actually going to lean your full weight on that rope? Are you going to trust that in that moment, when you take your hands off the wall, that rope is going to hold your weight. They're not going to plummet to your death, you know, about 20 meters below. Right? Are you going to trust that rope in that moment? That's what faith in Jesus, that's what faith in Jesus is like. Not, not just, okay, I have faith in Jesus, but I'm still clinging on to the wall. You know? it's like, I, I don't really trust you, Jesus, but you're there just as a bit of a backup, you know, safety, but I'm still clinging on to the wall. No, faith in Jesus is letting go of that wall and leaning your full weight back onto the rope. That, that's what faith is. That's what Jesus is calling us. Are we willing to lean our full weight on Him and trust our entire lives to Him? Or are we still keeping parts of our lives for ourselves? You know, what do we turn to for solace or comfort when times are tough. For some of us, we turn to work, you know, either a successful career or academic performance. For others, we find solace or comfort in relationships, spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, children, lover. Some eat and drink for comfort. You know, that's why we have the term comfort food, right? There's a reason why we call it comfort Food. So what's your comfort food? Some find comfort in wealth, possessions. Some go shopping. Some find comfort and escape into travel, entertainment, sports, hobbies. Some find comfort in pleasure, in sex. So, so where do we find our comfort? What, what are we really trusting in? You know, what, what do we trust in to hold our weight? when we lean back, when, when life kind of seems to come at us and we're leaning back, what we trust in to hold our weight? And GBC, where, where do you place your trust in as a church? You know, I come from a church that doesn't have a building, so I understand the blessings of a building. Thank God that you all have a building to look forward to and that the building is almost done. But be careful not to lean your weight on that new building. Be careful not to trust in a new building. Who builds the church? It's Christ. It's Christ. 
You know, don't, don't just invite people to a new building. Invite people to Christ. Make sure that you continue to proclaim Jesus and that your life together tells the truth about Him. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. If, if you must boast, don't boast about your new building. Boast about Jesus Christ. Peter also says in verse 19, Repent and turn again. Repentance is the flip side of having faith in Jesus. Biblical repentance involves a change in one's direction of life, a change of heart. You know, once we live for ourselves, now we repent. Now we live for God. We turn away from sin and we turn to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And in closing, we have three reasons why to come to Jesus. You know, Peter's a great preacher. Everything comes in threes. <laughs> so Peter gives us three reasons why we have to believe in Jesus. Reason number one, verse 19. Believe in Jesus so that your sins may be blotted out. It tells us Jesus alone is able to forgive us and make us clean. How many of us struggle with the burden of guilt and shame? How many of us have done things in our lives that we are really, really ashamed about? Things that maybe we don't even tell our spouse. How many of us struggle with guilt and shame? Isn't it amazing? Isn't it wonderful that Peter says, come to Jesus that your sins may be blotted out. May be blotted out. Completely cleansed. Completely doing away with the burden of our guilt and shame. That's reason number one. Reason number two, come to Jesus that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Verse, first half of verse 20. How many of us are exhausted? How many of us are tired, laboring under the expectations of the world, our families, God, our own expectations? How many of us are exhausted? Peter says, Jesus gives us rest. You know, the word refreshing comes from the same root word as rest. Remember what Jesus says? Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Times of refreshing. New life. Joy. You know, like the, like the joy that the layman had when he leaps and praises God. That, that's the kind of joy that Jesus alone is able to give. Fantastic. He refreshes our hearts. He he gives us deep and lasting joy so that we can still rejoice in Him even in the midst of our darkest sorrow and pain. Jesus gives us Himself. Isn't it wonderful? The verse says, times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord because Jesus is with us. The third reason why we come to Jesus, that God may send the Christ appointed to you Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things. Verses 20 and 21. Peter tells us that one day Jesus is coming back. And when Jesus comes back, He comes to restore all things and to make all things right. And the healing of the lame man is it's just a very small, tiny preview of the amazing things that Jesus will do when He comes back. The times of full restoration. God's kingdom has come and God's kingdom will one day come in an even fuller and more amazing way. And you know what's even more amazing is that He's invited each one of us here into this story 
of what God is doing in all of creation to make all things right in the entire universe. And Jesus says, come to me so that I can put you into this amazing story and one day make all things right again. Jesus gives true meaning to our lives. He gives us a future. He gives us a hope that will never, never disappoint us. He gives us the courage now to live wholeheartedly for Him, holding nothing back for Him as we look forward to the hope that we have in Him, the time of restoration. He gives us this courage that even if we struggle now, and many of us struggle now, we struggle with sin, we struggle with sorrow, with depression, we struggle with illness, with death, with loss. But Jesus says, even in the midst of our struggles, He is our hope. And He will never disappoint us. And He invites us to receive this hope by receiving Him. It's amazing. It's the wonderful news of the gospel that's extended to each and every one of us. This Jesus that Peter preaches is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So as we hear the words of Scripture today, put aside our fears and discouragement. Now, don't give up in the face of opposition and difficulty. Why? Because this Jesus is still at work. This Jesus is working to build His church. There is power in His name. Trust Him. Live for Him. Give everything you have to Him and make Him known to the nations. And I hope that all of us will be able to fill up that sentence at the beginning. Life would be unbearable if we didn't have Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. Dear God, we thank You and we praise You for Jesus. Oh Lord, You indeed are high and lifted up. And Father, we come to You and we just rejoice in the salvation that You offer us through Your Son. So we pray that You will move our hearts to love Him, to trust Him, to lean our full weight on Him, that we may know Him, not just now, but we may know Him forever as we hope in His coming. We pray this in His name. Amen. Please stand for the song of response. Jesus is the only one who can lead us and He's the only one who can transform our heart and transform us through the Holy Spirit. So as we sing this next song, the song of response, let us really give our heart, our life, our all to Christ who loves us so much. And let us make Him the Master and Lord and King of our lives. Let's sing wherever He leads our goal.